Philippians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you or seat bottom in front of you, and you can find one of them there. You're going to want to have a Bible with you, a Bible open uh, to this passage, because it may not make a lot of sense if you don't have one with you. You can have it on your phone, you can have it however, but just have a Bible. In Philippians chapter 3, we have Paul expressing a very important subject. In fact, one of the most jarring verses in the New Testament is found in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. I'm going to read it to you, and I want you to think about these words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. That's a serious statement from Jesus Christ. People who say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, drove out demons in your name, did miracles in your name, depart from me, I never knew you. Consider that. Will he say that to you? How do we determine if we're really saved? How do we know if we're saved or not? Now, the problem is many of us could take some, some ideas off the internet We'll just Google it. That'll tell me. However, we won't find the answer there. The Bible commands us to examine ourselves often to see if we are saved. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you, or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? Christ in you is salvation. 1 John deals with assurance of salvation extensively. I'm going to read this passage from 1 John chapter 2, 3 through 6. This is how we know him if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him and yet does not keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. So just from a quick canvassing of the New Testament, it's important that we know, are we in the faith? Are we in Christ? Is Christ in us or not? And the title of this sermon is The Unsaved Christian. Unsaved Christian. It's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as an unsaved Christian. However, there are people who claim they are Christians who are not saved. People who take the name for whatever reason maybe political expedience, maybe economic security. They claim the name of Christ, yet they are not of him. Don't let that be us. And part of the problem here in Philippians is that there are people who are coming into the church saying that they are Christians and leading people astray. Sabine, can we take me down just like a couple notches? I just Maybe I hear myself too much. Let's go ahead and read it. Chapter 3, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. 
In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. That is the passage we will be studying today. Let's go ahead and pray. Almighty God, you know that I am weak and needy. I come to this task not through my own strength or abilities, but through you. Father, I pray that your word would be opened up into the hearts of the people here, that they would see Christ as he truly is, that they would see him not as a, as a tack-on to all of their additional activities, but the primary purpose of our existence. Father, I pray that Christ would become real to every person in this room, that hearts would be transformed by the gospel, that people would be comforted and would be encouraged by your word today. Father, help us be aware of the counterfeit. Help us to know who or what is counterfeit Christianity. Help us to be able to discern these things today as we study your word. So remember, we've been studying Paul and this letter to the Philippians. And he has talked about living a life worthy of the gospel. What does that mean? How to do it? All the details about what it means. In fact, Paul was so dedicated to being a slave of Christ Jesus that he went to prison. Prison in Rome. And what they did to prisoners back then was not nice things. right? They're not prison here where you get three squares, you get some, some yard time. No, it's like they put you in a hole. And then if someone wants to bring you food, they may bring you food. So you suffer. And that's what Paul says. And he says he rejoices in this. He enjoys it. Not because he's a uh, uh, enjoys being, um, I can't say the word because it's too complicated for me, but he doesn't enjoy pain. A masochist, I think is how you say it. He, enjoy, he doesn't enjoy pain. He says that because his hope is in Christ. And so there are some people who are not saved but call themselves Christians. Would you, would you disagree? If you're disagreeing in your mind, Think about the reasons why you disagree. Is it someone you know that you love, that you care about, that maybe you hope is a Christian but isn't? Maybe it's you. Maybe you are a counterfeit Christian. One of the hardest things about sharing the gospel in the Bible Belt is everybody is a Christian in the Bible Belt. Everyone believes in Jesus Christ. Many of them don't go to church. Many of them live like they want to live. And they don't live for Christ. Christ is not their greatest treasure. But they know Jesus. In fact, my mom tells a funny story about my grandmother as she was opening the Bible and saying, you know, how many of you are, are Christians in here? And they were talking about being born again. And the lady said, well, I don't know about being born again. I don't know about being a Christian. But I'm a Baptist because my mother was a Baptist. That's not how this works. You don't inherit salvation. And the problem is many people miss this. They, they miss the reality of what it means to be in Christ. And I don't know if there's a, a more serious topic that I could talk about this week. I don't know if there's a more serious sermon that I've ever preached in my life. It's knowing the difference between, between being saved and unsaved. So how do we know? One thing we cannot do is have some lists that we can compare someone else to. I can't sit here and look at these and say, well, that person's unsaved, that person's saved. I can say, based on the fruit of their actions, I will question whether they are saved or not. 
but we do not know the heart of another person. And so this is mainly for us to evaluate ourselves and then to evaluate what is true faith and what is not faith. Now, the problem with this sermon is that it could go very, very long. And we have some activities this afternoon after the sermon that we need to get to. So be prepared that I may abruptly end us and we go into a part two next week. Okay? So let's go ahead and start with our key statement. Every Christian can be assured of their salvation by knowing the counterfeit traits and exhibiting the genuine traits of a joyful Christian. Let's look at the joyful Christian. Verse 1 says, in addition, now your Bible may be a different translation and it may say, finally. The problem with that word in the Greek is that it doesn't always mean finally. It could mean there's something more or there's a, a, an addition. And that's why the translation here says, in addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. That is a command, a command to rejoice. And then he explains, to write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. So what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? Does it mean we rejoice solely in the Lord? So let's look at the first word, rejoice. What does it mean to rejoice, to have joy? How many Christians could be described as joyful? I guarantee that there's several in this room that would be more grumpy than joyful. And we talked a lot about that, I think, last week. What did the wife, when asked if she wakes up grumpy, say? No, I let him sleep in, right? We have grumpy people among us. And so what does it mean to have joy in the Lord? Well, the first thing we need to recognize is that there's an object. Who is the object of our joy? The Lord. Who is the Lord? Jesus Christ is described as the Lord. Jesus the Christ. And so Paul is commanding the people in Philippi to rejoice in the Lord. And he says this multiple times throughout this letter. This letter has been known as the joyful letter, the letter of joy, because Paul is commanding joy. But he's not saying that because I want you to feel good. He's not saying rejoice because that'll make you a happy person and you'll be successful in life. He's saying it is a safeguard. It protects you from something. Joy in the Lord is a shield against false teaching. If you have your joy in Christ and Christ alone, then you won't have to worry about false teachers. You will not have to worry about someone adding to the gospel. You will not be taken captive by their philosophies and ideas because your joy is found only in Jesus Christ. In fact, many of you could say with William Carey, I am not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of it succeeding at things that don't matter. I would turn that and say, I am not afraid of being joyless. I'm afraid of having joy in things that don't matter. Find your joy in Christ. Paul claims that rejoicing in Jesus is a safeguard against false teaching. Christ is our chief object of joy. And a believer always has a reason to rejoice in Christ. We first see the greatness of who Jesus Christ is. Now, this is something that you can do on your own time. If you get the time, take chapter 2, look at 5 through 11, 
and you see in there a description of the attitude of Christ. And I want you to dwell on who Christ is. Who is Jesus Christ? We see that Jesus Christ existed in the form of God. He was God. He was fully God. His exact nature was God and did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. He did not use his godhood as a weapon against people, but he used it in order to humble himself, taking on the form of a servant and serving as a human. God puts on a straight jacket and becomes a human being, puts on human flesh and experiences life as we have it. Jesus Christ suffered. He got tired. He was exhausted. He was tortured. He was traumatized. He was beaten up. He was spit upon. He was betrayed. And that's the Jesus that I want to worship. That's the Jesus that I want to think about. But not only that, he was perfect in his obedience. Unlike us, he was perfect. He did not sin in all of this treatment. He is a mediator between us and God. You can draw joy from the fact that there are, is salvation in him alone and what that salvation looks like. You can have this joy in Christ because it is a protection for you. It's a shield that protects you from the fiery darts of the devil's false prophets. It is an umbrella that keeps out the rain, the deluge of false teaching. It is an ark that carries us safely through the storm of apostasy. This joy in Christ is what makes us go. It is the gas in our engines. But why is it that so many Christians go through life directly the opposite of joyful? I can think of several reasons, but I'm going to give you two. You can come up with your own reasons as well. The first one I think is ignorance. I don't think people have been told that they are allowed to be joyful. I think Christians get the idea that maybe we're not allowed to be joyful. Maybe we come into church all grumpy because we have to wear a tie or we have to wear tight shoes. I know when my kids uh, come to church, we ask them to put on something a little bit nicer than their PE clothes, right? And they have to put on something a little more restrictive. And that could be some, some lack of joy there. But Christians haven't been told to rejoice enough. Has anyone told you to find joy in Christ, in all circumstances. Has anyone told you to be joyful as a Christian? That joy is a protection for you. So if you haven't been told that you're allowed to be joyful, maybe you don't pursue it in Christ. Maybe you don't think Christ is the greatest joy. If God is the greatest good and Christ is the exact image of God, why would we not find joy in Christ alone? In fact, you should pursue joy in Jesus Christ. In fact, I want you to find joy in Jesus Christ. And if you don't get anything else out of the sermon today, be joyful in the right thing, Jesus Christ. Do not be joyful in all these other things because they're going to let you go. You can have a little bit of joy when you get drunk, but the next day comes. You can have a little joy when you do drugs, but the consequences are devastating. You can find a little bit of joy in relationships with women or men, but it's not lasting. The only thing that lasts 
is joy in Christ. So where do you put your joy? The second thing I think is that we forget. We forget Christ. As Christians, it's easy to go about our day without a thought of having a Savior. It's easy to get distracted with the things of this world. I like how Michael Reeves says, most of our Christian problems and errors of thought come about precisely through forgetting or marginalizing Christ. And that quote's in your bulletin, so you don't have to do verbatim. Most of our Christian problems and errors of thought come about precisely through forgetting or marginalizing Christ. And so Paul, when he says in our passage, to write to you again about this is no trouble. He is saying, I'm reminding you. It's not a problem for me. It's a safeguard for you. Joy in the Lord protects us from counterfeit traits. And here we go into the counterfeits. Now remember what I said about counterfeits. These are better used to examine yourself, and you can also get an idea of what a fake looks like. And the best way to know a fake is to know the genuine article, and Paul will explain that as we go. But let's first look at the counterfeit traits of a Christian. The first trait of the unsaved Christian is external righteousness. Righteousness means right standing before God. So how do we get right standing before God is the question at hand. Paul calls these men who have come to Philippi, to the Philippians, telling them they must keep the Jewish law. Verse 2 says, watch out for the dogs. We know that Paul in his missionary journeys was followed by a group known as the Judaizers. And the Judaizers would go to an area where Paul went and he would, they would see these churches popping up and they would get jealous. And they would say, well, if you really want to be of the people of God, you must be circumcised. I'm not going to explain that. There's kids in the room. You must be circumcised and you must follow the Jewish law. Don't eat pork. Don't do this. Don't do that. And you must be like the Jews if you want to be a person of God. In fact, this word dogs is not the cute little puppies, the chihuahuas that follow us around and ride in our cars with us. These are the, the scavengers. Those of you who have been to Afghanistan and Iraq know what these kind of dogs look like. They eat garbage. They eat the stuff around the outside of the city. And in fact, they are dangerous and ravaging. And what the Jews would do is they would call the Gentiles, that means the non-Jewish people, they would call them dogs because they would eat things that are undiscerning. They would eat whatever they wanted, like a dog. And so non-Jews were called dogs. So what does Paul, the Jew of Jews, the Hebrew of Hebrews, what does he say? Watch out for the dogs. He calls these people who are so determined to make the Christian like the Jew dogs. He turns the word that they use against Gentiles on, the, on its head. He says, they say that whatever, eat whatever you do, or eat, eating the way that you do is not discriminating, so therefore you cannot be a member of God's family. And Paul says that's not true. He says we are clean by faith, not by external measures. In fact, why is this tendency so common? Because it's really easy to do external things. It's really easy to come to church, but it's not so easy to have a heart ready for church. It's real easy to think of yourself as a good person because of your good works, 
But what about those thoughts that you think about your neighbor? What about the thoughts that you have? The feelings towards those? It's real easy to claim faith until it starts to get tested, isn't it? This is an important measure to recognize. External righteousness. The second trait of the unsaved Christian is works-based righteousness. Works-based right standing. So you have the external form, right? If I eat the right foods, if I say the right things, if I look the right way, if I dress up a certain way for church, then I'm saved. That's the first counterfeit. The second is works-based. And we see that in the second part of this passage. Watch out for the evil workers. What they accused Paul of, they were guilty of. So they would, they would accuse Paul of being an evil worker. They said Paul came in here and said you can be a member of God's family without anything, just faith. And they said, no, that's not true. You actually have to do these things. And they would follow Paul around telling people, wait, you think you're a Christian? Well, you have to do these things. You think you're a follower of Jesus? You have to do these things. When Paul talks about Epaphroditus as a co-worker, he calls these people workers of evil. These men, and, and well, mainly men that came in behind Paul, said that Paul is teaching a workless salvation. In fact, they would probably even use a play on words and say a worthless salvation. Workless is worthless is probably some kind of phrase they would use. And what Paul says is, no, they are the evildoers because they are adding to Christ what Christ accomplished on the cross, what Christ accomplished in his life of obedience was sufficient for everything. And they would say, no, you have to do the Jewish law. In fact, they would say, because of our obedience to God in our following the Jewish law, we are saved. And so they are saved through obedience. Confidence in the flesh is another way you could say that. It means that they are confident in themselves. Self-confidence is counter to the gospel. The third trait that we see of an unsaved Christian is flesh-based righteousness. So Paul doesn't mince words. He says, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. And in the Greek, it's really, watch out for the mutilators. Watch out for those who cut up the body. Watch out for those who just chop on your chop on the on the skin, the self-harmers. He said, watch out for them. Not self-harmers like we would think of a, a significant psychological issue, but self-harmers in the sense that these men were advocating circumcision. These men, because the Jew because God commanded the Israelites to be circumcised. And that was a sign of the covenant, of the relationship between them and God. These men would come in and say, you have to also cut the foreskin. He would say that because the foreskin is extra on the human body. And so therefore, it needs to be separated. And that would make you look holy. That would make you look like you're a member of God's family. And that's also a reminder to us about how sin travels through the human race it comes through the man from one man to the through the woman to another man and it's through the man that sin is perpetrated and so it's a reminder 
But here's what Paul is saying. He says, these guys are mutilators like the pagans. Because in the Old Testament law, you are forbidden from mutilating the flesh. So back in the day, when people worshiped gods, they would cut themselves and bleed and cut their body in order for God to look at them. And they would say, that's me getting God's attention by cutting my body up. And that's how they would try to communicate with God. And the Old Testament, God said, no, that's not what I want from you. That's not how you communicate with me. He says, by being in a relationship with me is the only way that you can be saved. Whereas the Old, so the Old Testament had a law against cutting yourself. So what he's saying here is that actually the people who are advocating for your circumcision are the mutilators. They are the pagans. They are the non-believers. They are not the people of God. And so when you see that in this passage, he is saying they are thinking they are the true sons of the kingdom because of their insistence on Jewish law supremacy. And he's saying that is not what this is about. You are not saved by the works of the flesh. Let's think of some examples of self-confidence or self-works-based religion. The first works-based religion that I can tell you about is the Mormons. The Mormons have a works-based faith. There are two types of faiths in this world. There is a works-based faith and a relationship-based faith. There's only one relationship-based faith, and that is Christianity, because Christ did the work for us whereas all the other ones involve work. So the Mormons, and the reason I say the Mormons are a works-based religion is because their own writings say that they are. Look at, well, you can't look at it, but 2 Nephi 25-23, I'm going to read it to you. It says, For we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children, and also our brethren, to believe in Christ. That sounds pretty good. I don't see anything wrong with that, right? Believe in Christ. Makes sense. And to children, oh, we already said that, and to be reconciled to God. There we go, right? That's, that's good. These are good things. For we know, now this is important, that it is by grace that you have been saved. Okay, I can get with that as a Protestant, but then they put a comma there. After all we can do. So we're saved after all we can do is what the Mormons teach. That's a works-based salvation. That is a works-based belief system. So when a Christian says, no, Mormons are not Christians, even though they claim to be Christians, we are not trying to be mean, we're not trying to be exclusive, but we're saying, you have a different faith. You don't have the same belief in Jesus Christ. You think you can earn your way to heaven. Or that you do part, God does part, and it works together in some kind of sweet setup where you get saved. The problem is Christ in Isaiah calls our works filthy rags. Filthy rags is everything that we do. In fact, he uses the term menstrual rags. The Catholics in the Council of Trent on justification say something similar. And now I want to I be very clear. Not all Catholics believe in this doctrine. Not all Catholics act in this way. And I think there are, there are many saved Catholics so do not hear me wrong. In fact, Martin Luther was Catholic before he got saved. So there are many 
Catholics that are saved, but there are some that are not. In fact, there's probably more not than that are, but this is what their church teaches. Listen to this. If anyone says, and this is from session six of the Council of Trent, if anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema. Anathema means excommunicated, kicked out of the church. And if the Catholic Church says that the Catholic Church is the means of salvation for people, and in fact the Council of Trent is on par with their scriptures. They say that the Bible and the Catholic teachings are on the same level. And so when they say that they should be anathema who think that you are saved by faith alone, you are justified by faith alone, they are saying that you have to work for your salvation. So even the Catholics have a doctrine that is works-based. And this is a big part of why Luther and his followers reclaimed the gospel message that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And we see that Paul is reiterating it. Now, I don't want you to think something. Just because you sit in a Baptist church does not mean that you are saved. You also have flavors of work-based righteousness. You trust in yourself. There's a flavor of false religion in all of us, I think, in many ways. One possibility is the work of philanthropy. I'm going to give a lot of money and that will save me. I don't care how much money you give to this church, that will not save you. It does not matter how much money you have or how much money you give. You will not be saved through your finances. It says the work of service is also a flavor of work-based righteousness or false religion. I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to be at every volunteer event. I'm going to volunteer with the most difficult kids and God will look on me with favor. That's not how this works. You're not saved through your volunteering. Now's not a good time to plug the children's service, but they definitely need volunteers. The work of ritual is also a flavor of false religion. Confession, confirmation, communion, baptism, prayers, beads, candles, church attendance, pointing a mat toward a city and bowing down five times a day in the direction of that city, whatever is a form of false religion. Because you're relying on yourself. There's some ceremony that is going to get you to heaven. That is not Christianity. The work of comparison. All right, I'm not the best guy in the world, but I can point you to a million people that are far worse than me. So I should get to heaven because other people are worse than me. The problem is you're comparing yourself with the wrong man. You're not comparing yourself with Jesus. If you have more righteousness than Jesus, well, God help you. The work of comprehension. This whole thing is a riddle. I'm going to figure it out, and when I figure it out, then I'm going to be in God's good graces. If I learn enough about the Almighty, then I will be accepted I can understand and articulate the salient points of the gospel. I can argue theology with the best of them. Therefore, I am a recipient of salvation. That does not save you. The work of a decision. 
I walked that aisle, I signed that card, I prayed that prayer. Well-meaning pastors and Christian pastors will tell you that if you simply make your decision to ask Jesus into your heart as a personal Savior, then you will be saved and you can doubt no more. That is a form of false religion because you're relying on something else besides Christ to save you. There was a man who was farming and he struggled with assurance. He didn't know if he was saved. And so one day he decided that he was going to nail in a, a fence post in the middle of his um, farm and he was going to write the date on it and that's the day that he knows he was saved. And so every time he felt some doubt or some confusion, he would go out to that fence post, look at that day and say, I am saved. Do you know what he's believing in? A fence post. He's putting his hope in a fence post. He's not putting his hope in Christ. And so... Sometimes decisionism can be an idol. It can be a false religion. The work of restitution. I've done so many bad things in my life. I'm going to go back and fix everything and take care of everything in order to be saved. That also is not salvation. The work of affliction. This was really popular in the mid Middle Ages, the, mid the medieval times. It looks like beating yourself up. Or penance. If I give myself hell here and now, God won't give me hell later. Kind of like a CrossFit workout. Martin Luther, in any attempt, in his attempt to be saved, beat his body with a whip, sometimes a whip that had sharp ends, and would beat himself. In fact, they say that one of the reasons he died when he did is because he exposed himself to the elements and tortured his body so much while he was a monk in a monastery that it led to a weakened constitution. He beat himself up in order to be saved. And he realized, I am not going to be saved this way. Only the just live by faith. And finally, you have the work of meditation as a flavor of false religion. I can just go on a retreat and be quiet and still before God. And he connects with me when I clear my mind and there are words put into my mind that give me assurance of salvation. God comes and meet, meets me where I am. You know who else God made, met? God met where they were, Pharaoh, and he died. Balaam, who was in error, he also was struck. So meditation is not a form of assurance. And then you have the tenth that I'm going to give you is the work of seeking affirmation. I don't know whether I'm saved or not, but if I can just get some elders to tell me, then, or anybody else who is saved to tell me, then I will find rest before God. If only the pastor would tell me that I'm saved, then this whole thing will be great. Who are you putting your trust in? The wrong people, the wrong person. So all these are flavors of works-based salvation and they are trash. Paul calls them dung. In fact, he uses a graphic word for poop. He says all these works are nothing. They are garbage in the act of salvation. So, we're going to have to slow down. I wanted to be done with Philippians by now, and you can tell we're only on chapter 3. So, we are going to slowly work our way to an end here. I'm not going to give you the genuine traits until next week. But what then is salvation? 
What does salvation look like? So let's start with a description of the gospel. And every Christian should be able to articulate the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And it starts with God creating the world. God created all things, and as the creator, he owns it. He created it, he owns it. And so he gave some commands to humankind. He created man as reflections, as image bearers of him. They were the ambassadors on the planet for God. And what happened is man rebelled. Just like you would see a, um, let's say an ambassador overseas decides that they don't want to follow the United States government anymore and rebels by choosing to go a different path. That's what humanity did, and therefore we're condemned. Condemned because God and man, the relationship was severed. There's a breaking of the relationship because only purity, only righteousness could stand before God who is perfect, who is holy. And so mankind in their sin then continued to spread the sin sickness throughout the whole world. Every generation that's born is born in sin. If you doubt that humans are sinful, you have not been watching the news because humans are depraved. Not as bad as we could be, but we are sinful. And it's only by God's grace that we are preserved. So instead of wiping out humanity completely, God has a plan for the redemption of a people. And he started that in progress right at the beginning in Genesis 3.15. He said that the seed of the woman would stomp on the head of the serpent. And that was a promise to a salvation coming. And he began to work on building a people. And he started by explaining his pattern with the Israelites. He said, you Jewish people are going to be my people. You must follow my commands and you will be an example to the nations as to what true people of God look like. And they failed over and over and over and over again as to be expected. And as that continued down the way, finally of the people of Israel came Jesus Christ. God in human flesh became man dwelt among us, lived the perfect life that Adam couldn't live, and then died a horrific death as a substitute for our sins, for those of us who are in the faith. He died on the cross, experiencing one of the worst ways to die, torturous means of death on a cross. And his death on the cross was horrific, but not just because of the physical torment, but also because he faced the wrath of God for every human being's sin, for those of us to be saved. The sin of those who become Christians. He experienced the wrath of God for that. He, if you are a Christian today, you can look at that cross and say, Jesus Christ bore the brunt of my sinfulness, and he took it on himself as the scapegoat, as the lamb that was slain. Perfect Jesus killed for us. But that's not the end of it because there is a response that is required. Just because we know this information in our heads, maybe you even believe that this information is true, does not mean that you are saved. Just like I could go to an airport and I could say, I believe that there are airplanes on this tarmac. I believe I understand aerodynamics and aero whatever they call it. I don't obviously I don't understand it. If I did understand it, I could say that. But until I get on the plane 
and fly in that plane. I'm not trusting in the knowledge that I have gained. So you, if you are in this room and you believe the story to be true, you have factual knowledge, and let's say that you also recognize the truthfulness of it, that you say, not only do I know, but I also believe that it's true because the demons believe in Jesus Christ, but they don't trust in him. If you do not trust in Jesus Christ, you will not be saved. And trust is not, I'm going to earn my way there. I'm not going to build a boat to save myself. Trust is, I put my hope in nothing else. All I have is Christ. That's salvation. That is salvation in Christ alone. There are so many controversies about salvation because this is so important. This is where the rubber meets the road. Do you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal life to bring you back to God? Or are you trusting in your own efforts? That's the difference between Christianity and every other one. I want to ask today as we begin to get ready to close, if you have not made the commitment to trust in Jesus Christ, now's a great time to do it. Now's the time to ask God for the forgiveness of your sins, knowing that you are in direct rebellion against the maker of the universe, and ask him for the forgiveness of your sins. It's not good to hesitate. We should definitely lean into Christ and make that relationship with Christ. That doesn't mean you have to go home and get your clothes changed and make all your, your reparations before you come to Christ. No, now is the time to do it. So we're going to spend a few minutes. I want you to, if you have business to do with God, you can do that in your chair. You can do it on your knees. You can do it walking up here. You know, you can do it however. But I want you to know, now is the time to make your relationship right with God. And if you're just coming to church because you think that's going to save you, don't bother. It's not going to save you. If you think that if I evangelize enough and save enough people, God will save me, you're giving us a bad name. Don't bother doing that. The only way to be saved is trust in Christ and Christ alone. Is he your greatest treasure? Let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you and we want to spend a few minutes of, of silence praying to you and thanking you for your grace and your mercy on that cross for those of us who are saved. Father, there are some in this room who do not know you, who do not have a relationship with you, who do not have the joy that is to be found in Christ, the joy that cannot be taken away, whether by chains or by prison or by betrayal. Father, we see that in the life of Paul, and we see that in the life of the Christian martyrs who year after year are executed because of their faith in Christ alone for salvation. Lord, I pray for those who may have been duped by a false gospel, who have been uh, tricked by a counterfeit religion, that you would work in their lives to see the truth and that they would reject all works-based righteousness, all works-based salvation, all human-centeredness, and trust fully on Jesus Christ and that relationship that is provided to us. Father, as we spend a few minutes, I pray that you would give us hope in you.
Father God, as we close this time of worship, I thank you for your son, for Jesus Christ, the death on the cross for us who don't deserve redemption, who don't deserve salvation. Father, I pray for those of us who are in the faith that you would bring us joy, you would bring us happiness through holiness, that we would pursue Christ and Christ alone, that he would be our greatest treasure and nothing else would pull us away from that. Lord, I thank you for the song, All I Have is Christ, because that is true of us. We either have Christ or we have nothing. And I thank you for that. Father, be with us as we sing our closing song and spend time with the cherries as we, 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 we say goodbye. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.